This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Pagli in Stockholm, Sweden, and this is the Polar Geopolitics Podcast, episode 20. And to uh, celebrate and mark this uh, milestone in the history of this podcast here, we have the uh, great honor to have uh, on the phone line from Yellowknife Canada, Brigadier General Patrick Carpentier, Commander of Joint Task Force North, the mission of which is to exercise sovereignty and contribute to safety, security, and defense operations in the Canadian North. General Carpentier, thanks very much. We're really uh, excited to have you here on the podcast. Eric, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about the Arctic. Yeah, you know, we met here in Stockholm uh, earlier this year. Uh, the general was in town for a, a security conference at the uh, Swedish National Defense University. A few months later here now, we have you online for this uh, episode of the podcast. No one better to talk to about the security of the Arctic and especially the Canadian North than yourself. But that first we could start, General Carpentier, by asking you uh, to please explain the mission of Joint Task Force North and how it goes about safeguarding Canadian security in the Arctic. Well, as you know, JTSN is a force employer, which means that our job here is really to lay the groundwork that will enable Canadian Armed Forces operations in the north. So we do not have, or we have very minimal assigned forces in the north. And so through partnerships, we establish the relationships necessary for us to enable operations in the north. As we do things, we will bring forces up from other locations in Canada and then employ them in the north. So our role is really to plan and execute those operations with forces provided to us by other force generators. We'll talk about some of those partnerships a little bit later on in in this discussion. One aspect of your work is with the Arctic Security Working Group, which uh, met last week uh, there in uh, Yellowknife, to discuss uh, multi-domain awareness and information sharing. Could you perhaps uh, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the Arctic Security Working Group is a, it's a biannual forum that brings together defense, uh, safety, security, and basically all government departments to Yellowknife. And it's really to enable those pre-crisis relationships that are essential to get things done in the Arctic. As you know, it's a huge territory, and with very few assets, the partnerships and relationships that we establish through the Arctic Security Working Group are critical to success in doing those things. The other real special and uh, interesting portion of the Arctic Security Working Group is that it's not strictly national. We we have partners from Alaska in Alaskan Command, and we have Joint Arctic Command from Denmark or from Greenland that are also participating in that. So, you know, if you look at the North American Arctic, we are covered from uh, basically the Pacific to the uh, North Atlantic by those partnerships with Greenland, Denmark, and the U.S., Okay, and the idea of a multi-domain awareness, I guess that implies uh, air, sea, land, uh, different uh, aspects of uh, the security environment there in the north? Yeah, the security environment in the north is no different than anywhere else. It's evolving in its domains. And the reality is that a lot of what we do is being impacted by space, is being impacted by the info domain, is being impacted by cyber. We just had, you know, a couple of um, cyber attacks uh, in Canada that have caused damage to uh, government systems. The reality of operations in the north is basically the same as everywhere else. So the ability for us to make sure that we safeguard in all domains is becoming more critical. And so it means an evolution to the missions that we had traditionally done, which were mainly, you know, land, sea, and air. Now we have to worry about other domains uh, also. So the evolution of this is something that we're working on on a daily basis. 
You mentioned pre-crisis relationships. Does that mean that Joint Task Force North also works with civilian crisis management as well as military security? Yeah, so in Canada, the Canadian Armed Forces are responsible for air search and rescue. But the reality of uh, small northern communities is that the the number of people that are on the ground is uh, is actually very small. So whenever, and I I know we'll probably get to the ranger issue later on in, in this interview, the Canadian Forces have rangers in all the communities. Um, so a lot of times when there is ground search and rescue, we help the RCMP. The RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, has the mandate for ground search and rescue in Canada. However, with the lack of people on the ground in each of the communities, our rangers often help out with those ground search and rescues. So this is just one example, but you know you can take this over to all the different federal departments that operate in the north. Each department's ability to do things is enhanced by partnerships with the others. So that's really what we're trying to get to through the uh, Arctic Security Working Group. Now, if we zoom out to the the, the big picture here, um, are there any overarching principles, paradigms, or strategies that characterize Canada's outlook on security in the Arctic? Yeah, you know, looking at uh, how Canada approaches the North and Arctic, it's really central to, to that thinking is the Arctic Council, the Arctic and Northern Policy Framework, and then Strong, Secure, and Engage, which is our uh, most recent defense policy. So, you know, for Canada, we, we view the Arctic as a dynamic and evolving region. And within the rules-based international order, Canada looks to other Arctic nations to work together through forums such as the Arctic Council. The Arctic and Northern Policy Framework is really the the whole of government new policy that was put out just before the election. This document is really a positive new approach because the consultation that happened at all levels, including with Indigenous communities, is unprecedented. So it's a really good document. And within that document, there's a security chapter, which is really based on strong, secure and engaged. That was the defense policy that was put out in 2016. So those are the overarching mechanism through which we try to put out what can this position towards the northern Arctic are. When, uh, when we met earlier this year in Stockholm, uh, you were talking about access deny versus control in the Arctic. Are these tools or outlooks that you're, you're currently working on? And if so, could you perhaps uh, explain a bit what they uh, entail? Yeah, well, certainly when you look at the JTFN, AOR, the three territories, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and, uh, and Nunavut, when you put that together, that's essentially the size of the continental U.S., The whole AOR is about 7 million square kilometers. It's about 40% of Canada's landmass and 75% of Canada's coastline. When we look at that area with very sparse population, because the total population of Canada's north is about 113,000 people, the necessity for uh, surveillance and control of that AOR is critical. So part of our missions through SSC is to, to provide surveillance and control and to maintain visible, persistent presence throughout the north. As we look to the future environment of the Arctic, we, you know, we are very aware that things are changing. And so we're making sure that our capabilities are evolving to make sure that we can meet the uh, future challenges of the Arctic environment. That leads very well to my next question about environmental change, which obviously is one of the main paradigms of what's going on in the Arctic uh, that uh, influences a lot of what's happening, whether it's economic development or uh, climate change being a threat to uh, coastal communities and such. From a military standpoint, from a security standpoint, uh, how is environmental change affecting uh, your planning in the north of Canada? From a military perspective, we always take the environment as a uh, point of consideration when we plan operations. 
climate change does impact the North and it probably impacts the North at a greater rate than it does other parts of the world. The reality is that for us, it's a, it's a consideration in everything that we do. You know, from a planning perspective, there's no real change because it, it's just part of the planning process that we go through. But I can say from a climate perspective, we're seeing the effects are real, they're accelerating, but our ability to plan around those things is not affected. Does it require any, any additional or different types of investments or force deployments or anything like that? Or is it just business as usual and just adapt piecemeal? Or how do you go about doing that? Well, certainly from a, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint, it means that the realities of climate change have to be taken in consideration. You know, what I would say is, again, because the AOR is so big, it varies from location to location quite a bit. And so every specific investment or planning effort that we make takes climate change in consideration. Okay, if we maybe talk now about the geopolitical environment in the North, in the Arctic, in the Canadian North, how is Canada adapting to that, to the the increased interest that we're seeing from the likes of Russia and China in particular? Russia's position in relation to the Arctic is that they derive 20 to 30 percent of their GDP through resource extraction and the connection of Russia to the rest of the world is through the Northern Sea Route. So you can see that from a strategic perspective, the Northern Sea Route and access to the Arctic from Russia is critical to the well-being of that nation. So everything that Russia does in the Arctic has to be seen through that lens. But for us, the realities of the Arctic are a little bit different. And so as long as we continue to operate within the rules-based structure that we have in the Arctic, what Russia needs to do uh, is really related to their economic well-being. From the Chinese perspective, I think it's a mistake to look at China from an individual standpoint. I think from a uh, global standpoint, we have to look at the global population continuing to grow, global poverty actually going down. And so the demand for resources from nations that are coming out of poverty is going to continue to increase. So from a Chinese perspective, they are trying to establish links to other parts of the world where they can uh, derive resources. So the Arctic, of course, because of the, the vast resources that are here, are attractive to China and also to the rest of the modernizing world. So I think those are the geopolitics that really impact the Arctic. And, you know, I'd caution against seeing the North and Arctic as separate from the rest of the world. It's a part of the world that gets impacted by geopolitics. I mean, some people believe this this idea of Arctic exceptionalism. I'm not sure if that's a, an idea you subscribe to, that you can engage with Russia in a different way in the Arctic than you can in other parts of the world. Do you see the, any, any validity in that, that Russia is more open to engagement with uh, other Arctic countries than it is in other contexts in the world? And also, if I can also follow up a bit about, do you see any, any concern over the military investments that Russia has made in the Arctic? Or do you see it more as a local issue there, as you mentioned, securing the Northern Sea Route uh, for their own economic development? Or do you see a more of a force projection uh, dimension to their um, investments in the Arctic militarily? I think to look at it strictly with one lens would be a mistake. I think we are not naive. We realize that a lot of the forces and technology are dual use. So I I think that our eyes are wide open. However, I would caution against um, making too brash statements or, you know, we have to, from my perspective, I think the main reason that Russia is pushing hard on on the northern sea route is really economical for the Russian economy. But we are by no means discounting the aggressive nature of some of the actions uh, from Russia. 
Now, discussing the Northern Sea Route, of course, the other great Transarctic Seaway is the Northwest Passage, which uh, goes through uh, Canada. It's been disputed by some, uh, including the United States, about whether it's a territorial waters or not. We won't get into that discussion, of course. But is that also a security concern for Canada, is to secure the uh, Northwest Passage uh, in, in your own territory? The Arctic waters of Canada are obviously experiencing the same increases in activity that we're seeing in other parts of the Arctic. So although the traffic increases have not kept pace with global increases, the increased activity in the north certainly is drawing our attention because we need to uh, ensure that we have the resources in place to do the things that we need to do. The majority of the increased activity that we see is things like ecotourism, adventurers, those types of things. Uh, Eventually, this probably going to be more resource extraction, but that has yet to uh, materialize. And the reality of, uh, of the Northwest Passage and the Arctic in general is that, you know, a lot of the conversation around climate change discounts the complexity of Arctic operations. So from, from where we sit, the Arctic is going to continue to be extremely complex to operate in. You know, we're talking about fast-flowing water, poor charting, extreme environments with unpredictability because of uh, flowing ice and different kinds of challenges. So the challenges of operations in the north, I think, remain. Yet with more activity, it means that we're going to have to uh, service more people getting in trouble. The more the crisis management outlook on things that we talked about earlier before. And of yep. course, you had that cruise ship that had uh, that was stranded a couple of years ago, which I guess presented a, a rather challenging set of circumstances. Yeah, I was going to add the it was the academic Yafe. So while it was uh, it was challenging, it also showed that Canada's resources were up to the mark. The responses from all government departments uh, in Canada was actually pretty exceptional. So I'm very proud of the work that the team here, you know, the whole of government team did here. The connection with all the departments and the territorial EMO uh, in particular were, uh, were outstanding. So kudos to all the people that were involved in that because it, it really showed that Canada's uh, capabilities are actually pretty good. Definitely. And um, the United States now seems to be paying uh, closer attention to the Arctic in the last last year or so, especially, of course, a lot of the attention uh, being turned to Greenland. And we won't go into the details about that, of course. But can perhaps say uh, a bit about uh, U.S.-Canada cooperation in Arctic security and how that is, is evolving? Yeah, actually, Canada and U.S. cooperation in the Arctic is nothing new. During the Second World War, Canada sent troops to Alaska. We participated in the Aleutian campaign. You know, since 1942, Canada and the U.S. have worked together in the Arctic for the mutual defense of uh, North America. Through the Cold War, we built the distant early warning line throughout North America. Uh, We established NORAD. And really, you know, Canada has had no greater ally than the U.S. in the Arctic. We've worked hand in hand, basically, uh, from the beginning. You know, even going back to the gold rush, the ties between Canada and the U.S. are unending. And uh, if we look at another uh, area of cooperation between uh, Canada, uh, the United States, and, and other nations, uh, NATO. Can you perhaps comment a bit, uh, General Carpentier, and I know you've actually worked at, uh, I think, NATO headquarters at one point to, in your career. Can you perhaps talk about how that is evolving, the, the role of NATO in the Arctic uh, vis-a-vis Canada, and just your general reflections on uh, common or collective security in the Arctic involving Canada? Yeah, I was at uh, Gallenkirchen flying on uh, NATO AWACS from uh, 96 to 99. Then I was uh, the NATO exchange officer to the French E3 program from uh, uh, 99 to 2002. So I, I uh, my experience at NATO was outstanding. I loved working there. And the reality is that today NATO is more important than ever. And that is recognized in strong, secure and engaged. And as partners, it's critical that we work 
together to secure the Western alliance that we've created. So NATO is, is central to everything that we do. One of the differences of the North American Arctic is that it's very sparse in uh, lines of communication and infrastructure. So the forces that we deploy to the north are often very small. But for the last few years, almost every exercise or operation that we've done in the north have included some NATO countries. And the reason for that is that uh, we think that it's critical that we work together to develop better ways of operating in the Arctic and then to spread the wealth of the knowledge and operational capability that is resident here in Canada with our NATO allies. And uh, Canada just recently launched, just a few weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, an Arctic and Northern Policy Framework. Perhaps, General Carpentier, you could comment a bit on that and uh, also maybe say what you see as the greatest challenges that you currently face and uh, that you will face in the, in the near future. And are there any major investments or innovations that are going to be needed in the years ahead for the Canadian Armed Forces to continue to fulfill their missions in the Arctic? The Arctic and Northern Policy Framework, as I was saying earlier, is a pretty interesting document because it highlights a level of coordination and collaboration between not just government departments, but also indigenous communities throughout the north and in um, the northern portions of some of the provinces. So this collaborative work has security and defense chapter, which is largely based on strong, secure, and engaged. So the two work hand-in-hand, and it's a very good evolution to lay out the future of what we'll do in the Arctic. So in Strong, Secure, and Engaged, we do realize and mention that the modernization of NORAD and continental defense are an area that needs work and attention. So in terms of investment, we don't know just how big that's going to be, but certainly from a continental perspective, replacing the sensors that were in place for the Cold War is going to be an expensive undertaking. So looking at what uh, needs to be done for the future is, uh, is an area that is getting attention at this point and will probably be the source of a heavy investment in the future, although we're not sure at this point what that might look like. Future is always uncertain. Finally, uh, finally, General Carpentier, it's, it's been great uh, talking to you here. And I want to ask uh, one final question, if you have the time. We alluded to it earlier in the interview tonight uh, about the uh, Canadian Rangers. Perhaps tell us about the Canadian Rangers and their role in exercising Canadian sovereignty. Rangers are community-based organizations that are part of the Canadian Forces as reservists. They are part of the Canadian Forces family, and they are really hired by us for their knowledge of the land that they live on and the uh, local culture. And basically, they are really the environment experts for different parts of the Arctic. So the Canadian Rangers are, they're the best representatives and ambassadors for the Arctic, and they are present in almost every northern community. And they, for the Canadian Armed Forces, they give us expertise out on the land and give us a connection with each one of those communities. The communities are also involved in the selection of the Ranger members. And so that understanding between the Canadian Forces and the Rangers is something that we couldn't do without. It really gives us an organic connection to every part of our land. It's very much something that we're very proud of and depend on in no uncertain terms. So in the Canadian Arctic, there's uh, about 70 communities. We have ranger patrols in about 62 communities. And the uh, rangers in Canada's northern Arctic total about 1,800. To put that in terms of relative population, there's only 113,000 people in the north, 2,000 of which are rangers. That's a pretty big percentage. And it gives us a level of awareness of every part of Canada's northern Arctic that we wouldn't otherwise have.
they are the experts on the land. And so we rely on them to teach us how to survive in the Arctic. They're not soldiers, so they're not trained in tactics or military operations, but they do train us in how to survive in the Arctic. Age-old knowledge that has uh, served uh, Arctic explorers uh, well in the past. Interesting that you're relying upon them uh, even in the, the year 2020, which is soon upon us. Brigadier General Patrick Carpentier, it's been uh, really great to talk to you again after our first meeting in Stockholm, and hope to be able to talk to you again in the future here on this podcast to keep track of what's going on in the in the North, specifically the uh, Joint Task Force North of the uh, Canadian Armed Forces. So thanks very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast, Episode 20. Eric, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, sir. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.